G'day folks, welcome back to another episode of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. This week we're going to do the usual roundup of security fixes that have gone into the supported Ubuntu releases over the past week. We're going to look at some updates for uh, Fuse, MandyB, uh, ImageMagic, the Apache web server, the Linux kernel and more. Uh, Camilla is going to bring you part three of her Ubuntu hardening guide and we're going to follow up on a discussion that we had a couple of weeks ago about enabling uh, position-independent executables for Python in Ubuntu 22.04, the upcoming long-term support release. Uh, so let's just get into it. This week, there were 105 unique CVEs that were addressed by the team. The first one up was an update for Fuse in uh, 6.04 Extended Security Maintenance. Uh, this is an issue that uh, I guess has been lingering for a while, but unlikely to affect many Ubuntu customers and users because it's uh, around the use of SE Linux. Basically, uh, in Ubuntu, we uh, use AppArmor by default. Uh, other distros like Fedora and Red Hat and CentOS and others uh, traditionally use SE Linux as their mandatory access control system. So whilst we do support using SE Linux on Ubuntu, we don't enable it by default, and so you probably have to go out of your way to do that. As such, this bug is unlikely to affect uh, the vast majority of people, but if you were using SE Linux on Ubuntu in uh, 6.04 Extended Security Maintenance uh, and you were using Fuse, you're a little bit safer now because in this case, uh, through the use of SE Linux, it was possible to bypass the regular restrictions that Fuse uh, tries to enforce that would prevent non-root users uh, from mounting a Fuse file system with the Allow Other Mount option. This is a Fuse file system specific option uh, that, well, effectively, when you normally mount a file system as uh, via Fuse, it mounts it with your uh, own user ID and that only your user ID can access the files. Uh, however, if you use this allow other mount option, which is traditionally only exposed to root, uh, then uh, anyone can access the files. It was then possible to use that as a non-root user and so therefore to then possibly then trick other users into accessing files from your Fuse uh, mounted file system. And you, know, you could then go on and do other things as a result. As I say, that does need SE Linux to be enabled and being used though, so you're unlikely to affect the majority of uh, users in practice. After that was an update for MandyB. Again, uh, this actually is probably the Winsy Award for the older CVE fixed in the last week. Uh, this is from 2015, a uh, low priority one here, where basically it was possible that through uh, the daily cron job for MandyB that a local user may be able to kind of change their own permissions to act as the man user and you know, then be able to, I guess, get you know, a small amount of access through that. But traditionally, the man user doesn't have much access on a, on a normal system, so it doesn't really expose a lot, hence why that was given a low priority. But that has now been fixed for Ubuntu 6.04 Extended Security Maintenance. Uh, after that, we had an update for Firefox. This is actually uh, the corresponding update for Firefox that I talked about back in last week's episode, but for uh, users on ARM64 uh, architecture. Basically, uh, in preparing this update, uh, the update was ready to go for all the other ar architectures, but ARM64 uh, had a few issues that then you had to be resolved. So that has now been done, and that update to 98.0.1 is now out. If you want to know a bit more about the vulnerabilities that were fixed here, uh, yeah, check out last week's episode. After that was an update for Bind. Uh, this fixed two different CVEs for uh, the standard support Ubuntu releases. So 18.04 long-term support, 20.04 long-term support, and 21.10. And uh, one of these was still applicable back to the releases in extended security maintenance. So that's 14.04 and 16.04 extended security maintenance. Uh, in that case, it was a possible uh, uh, cache poisoning attack that could be conducted uh, through forwarded uh, name server records. There was also uh, a bug in those later releases where it was possible to uh, cause basically a file description exhaustion if a client was able to effectively trick the bind server into keeping a connection in the closed wait status uh, then for an indefinite period even though they had closed the connection. Therefore, you could basically get it to run out of file descriptors and uh, cause a denial of service in the bind server. 
an update for Apache was after that. And the four different CVs here and that go all the way back to 1404 extended security maintenance, 1604 extended security maintenance, 1804 and 204 long-term support and 2110. Uh, the vulnerabilities here were uh, a heap out of bounds uh, read or write that was possible through uh, the mod set module in Apache. Uh, that could lead to a possible crash or remote code execution. Similarly, uh, there was an out of bounds read that was possible through a crafted request if you're using mod Lua. Again, uh, being an out of bounds read, that would probably just be more likely a crash and denial of service through that rather than uh, any kind of like actual memory corruption. Uh, but at least, yeah, denial of service through that one. Uh, there was also a possible HTTP request smuggling attack that was fixed. Uh, basically, uh, Apache would fail uh, to close an inbound connection when an error had been encountered. Uh, when that error was encountered, it would then discard the request body. Then you can imagine it would be possible to then potentially inject a uh, extra request body as a result, but with the original request headers, and that then able to then you know, smuggle that request through as a result because the body wouldn't match the headers. And then uh, there was a, a low priority vulnerability that was fixed as well, a possible issue to overflow uh, applicable to 32-bit systems only if you had changed the default limit XML request body uh, setting to being greater than 350 megabytes. By default, that's one megabyte. But yeah, if you had changed that to be greater than that and you're on 32-bit system, there was a possible integer overflow there. That could then lead to an out-of-bounds write. Uh, and as a result, you've got memory corruption. So you could most likely crash uh, Apache and cause the denial of service or possibly get a remote code execution. An update for Image Magic for our 604 extended security maintenance customers was after that. 15 different CVEs were rolled into this, uh, you know, being the popular image processing libraries, a lot of different uh, file formats that it handles, all written in memory unsafe language. So the usual sorts of vulnerabilities that we uh, expect to see are here, things like out of bounds, uh, memory reads and writes, null pointer references, divides by zero, all of that kind of thing that could be triggered through crafted image files. Uh, ranging then from denial of service through to remote code execution as the impact from those attacks. After that was an update for the Linux kernel. As always, thanks to the kernel team for doing all the heavy lifting on these. And thanks to Steve Beatty on the Ubuntu security team for doing the heavy lifting on writing up all the Ubuntu security notices for these. Uh, yeah, there was uh, 21 CVEs that were fixed in the first of these. Uh, I'll just go into detail on a couple of these vulnerabilities, uh, the, particularly the high priority ones. So uh, in Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support and 21.10, that's an update for the 5.13 kernel there. Uh, and as I say, the, these vulnerabilities were that there was a, it was possible to trick the BPF verifier into allowing you to use uh, arbitrary pointer arithmetic through BPF operations. Uh, that could then lead to obviously out-of-bounds read or write. And because you can then get you know, memory corruption within the kernel, you can possibly you know, escalate your own privileges or at least cause a crash and therefore denial of service of the kernel. Uh, the other high priority vulnerability that was fixed here was another privilege escalation that could be done through uh, C groups V1. Basically, the release agent parameter there was not properly restricted so that the unrestricted or unprivileged users could go and uh, mess with that when they weren't meant to and therefore escalate their privileges as a result. Uh, so yeah, those same vulnerabilities were then also fixed um, plus a subset of the others for uh, the 5.4 kernel that is used for Ubuntu 20 for long-term support and the hardware enablement kernel for Ubuntu 18.0 for long-term support. Uh, similarly, for Ubuntu 18.0 for long-term support, the general availability kernel there, which is a 4.15 based kernel, is used as the hardware enablement kernel for Ubuntu uh, 6.04 extended security maintenance and 14.04 extended security maintenance on Azure. A bunch of updates for that one as well. 
a huge number of CVEs, 45 CVEs were fixed for the 4.4 based kernel that is used in as uh, the general availability kernel for 1.16.04 extended security maintenance. And it's also uh, used on 14.04 extended security maintenance now. Uh, so yeah, thanks again to the kernel team for handling all of those as well. Uh, if you are using a live patch that enables you to apply certain uh, CPU fixes without having to reboot, the live patch team have released uh, live patches for both of those vulnerabilities that I talked about, and they are applicable for all well all of our releases back to 14.04 extended security maintenance. Uh, we support live patch all the way back to there. And it depends really on which kernel you are using against which uh, release there as to whether a live patch is available or not. I've included in the show notes kind of the table that shows you then uh, what which ones are available there and which essentially live patch versions that applies to. So you can run canonical live patch status on the command line and kind of see you know whether, I, first of all, you've got live patch enabled. But if you do then, whether uh, you have the right version or not installed and therefore if you've got that live patch enabled on your machine. All right, uh, just a couple more to go through. We had an update for bin utils for 1404 extended security maintenance. In this case, three different CVEs. Uh, these were a mix of uh, a possible out-of-bounds read, a possible out-of-bounds write, and a memory leak when handling various crafted files with bin utils. Uh, bin utils is kind of the package that contains a lot of different uh, utilities for handling binary files, as the uh, name suggests. Uh, but it's generally not expected to be used on untrusted data. Basically, upstream don't consider you know any of these sorts of things to be really high priority issues. And can, uh, similarly, we also don't usually see you know vulnerabilities in bin utils as uh, you know being high priority compared to certainly other packages where you really are handling untrusted data. But yeah, we do try to fix them as we can. So uh, yeah, thanks to the team for fixing those. And finally, we had an update for CK Editor for Ubuntu releases 18.04 long-term support, 20.04 long-term support, and 21.10. Uh, this is the JavaScript rich text editor that can be embedded in web pages to do rich text editing of various web fields. Uh, it's often used by projects like Django and other sorts of things like that. In this case, there were three different cross-site scripting and three different possible uh, JavaScript remote code execution vulnerabilities that were fixed in there as well. All right, uh, so that takes us to the end of the week in security updates. Okay, so this week uh, we're bringing you the third part in Camilla's uh, series discussing Ubuntu hardening. We've previously talked about uh, hardening during install time, hardening post-install, and now uh, Camilla's looking at uh, kind of hardening that you can take when you're deploying your applications. That includes things like trying to make sure that you reduce the attack surface of the machine and the applications that are installed, uh, using things like mandatory access controls to provide a principal least authority to your applications to try to sandbox them, and other good security hygiene practices as as well. So yeah, listen on to find out more. Take it away, Camilla. Hello, listener. Welcome back to our Ubuntu Hardening Podcast mini-series, where in three episodes released across several weeks, we have been discussing how to build a network service in an Ubuntu operating system, but not just any Ubuntu operating system, and instead, a hardened one. Up until this point, we went from nothing to digital big bang which was the equivalent of our system install, to years of chemical, geological, and climatic transformations, which were actually a few weeks maybe of setting up basic security measures after our initial install, to, at last, the point where we are ready to finally have our server be born, just as life once did in our beautiful planet Earth. We reach the next stage in our evolution and prepare ourselves to now finally install our server. Don't be a cheater though, and don't skip any steps. If you haven't listened to the other episodes, go do that before you move on here. 
Earth did not become what it did in a day. So you can spare a few minutes to listen to the other episodes before continuing with this one. Other listeners might have waited a few weeks and poor Earth waited billions of years. Lucky you, hardening your Ubuntu system is slightly easier than creating an entire planet and even an entire universe from scratch. Introductions made, let's jump right into finally getting our service and all related software up and running in our already hardened machine. And let's harden it even more, shall we? I will start this off by just saying, no installing of services that don't use cryptography. HTTP, gone. FTP, next. Telnet, please no. Don't, don't even joke about that. Just don't. Or I might actually just start crying unencrypted tears of anger. Encryption technology should be here to stay. And if you're sending sensitive data over the wire, give that data a reason to feel safe and protected during its digital travel. Add that S to the end of the network protocol names. Level up your HTTP and make it HTTPS. Configure your Apache or Nginx server to use TLS, not SSL. SSL is deprecated. TLS version 1.2 or above. Another important thing to consider when installing the entire stack of applications, libraries, and frameworks you might need to run your system, less is more. I actually saw this in a cooking show and I agree with this statement. I know we sometimes might get amazed at the huge amount of possibilities we have whenever installing software. The human mind has created the most incredible utilities and we have the power to simply install all of them with one simple command. But just because you have a wide variety of ingredients, it doesn't mean you have to use them. Some people might like french fries with their ice cream. That does not imply you need a french fry library to get your Sunday application to be delicious. Sometimes a little chocolate sauce drizzle is all you need. Chef's kiss. The point here is install the minimum necessary to run your application. Don't increase the attack surface. The more you have running in your system, the more possibilities of entry an attacker will have. Keep it short and sweet and avoid getting lost in a sea of files, users, and processes that you don't know how they really work or what they really do. And while we're at it, if you do have the chance, try to install only one or two network services per system or device. Don't have your server simultaneously be a web server, a mail server, a file server, a database server, and an ice cream server, because why not, right? Don't, though. This limits the number of services that can be compromised if a compromise ends up happening. It limits the exposure for a single device. Plus, when installing the applications necessary to run these services, remember that a lot of applications like Apache, Nginx, MySQL, PHP, they all have security settings. They know they are the regular targets of attacks, so they provide the user with the tools to perform a secure install or set secure post-install configuration values. If it is provided to you, use it. Harden your application as well. After all, it is this application that will most likely be the point of entry into your system. So divide, secure, and conquer. We did it, friends. We have a device providing a service over the network.
One would think that after six days of work creating a digital ecosystem, we would be able to rest on the seventh day, as done by some mighty entities before us. However, people concerned with cybersecurity don't sleep or stop ever. Cybersecurity is a continuous effort, so post-application setup measures must be taken as well if you want your server to keep securely thriving. We have got to ensure the evolution of the species and keep our metaphorical Earth safe and in tip-top shape in order to guarantee the best chances of not only survival, but growth and prosperity. Who needs sleep when you can have the joy of knowing that you set up your device for execution success and longevity in the grueling environment that is the internet? Let's start then by disabling unnecessary open ports and stopping the execution of unwanted services. You set up your application using the minimum necessary, which is great. Sometimes, however, during install or even during configuration, applications will open ports and set up services that you might not need. Heck, we are talking about this in the post-application install and setup phase of our process, however, this could also be done in the post-installation of the operating system phase of the process. Checking out which ports are unnecessarily open and closing these ports will reduce the attack surface area in your system, as an attacker has less points of entry to choose from. A house with one door and one door only provides one single point of entry to an external entity. Of course, this external entity could manufacture a new entry point using mechanical tools, but I then digress from the real intention of this analogy. So let's stick to the basics of the idea here, shall we? An example of an unnecessary open port might be a database port. Sure, you have set up a host-based firewall, as we have already suggested, and no internet traffic which would have this service as a destination is allowed through. But still, layers. When we talk about security, we talk about having various and various layers that will protect you in case the previous one has somehow been cracked. So trust your firewall without trusting it completely. If you don't need the database port open to the entire internet, only to localhost, then leave it open just for localhost. If you don't want to do it for yourself, then do it for me, please. It makes me a lot less nervous knowing that a multitude of non-used open ports are being closed and removed from harm's way. The internet can be a brutal place, you know? <sighs> Use a tool such as Netstat, check your open ports, and disable internet access for those that don't need it through the related applications configuration file or other available resources. It will be quicker than you think and will provide you with long-term peace of mind. Bonus points for the fact that you will know something weird might be happening when you see that some port that should not be accessible through the cyberspace is being used to send some data to some shady IP address in a remote country. Syslog mail incoming. This same idea applies to unwanted services or unwanted demons. Check out what is set to run automatically or in the background of your system. Check your cron files and make sure that these background programs that might be a risk are not just there executing with the sole purpose of being exploited. Only the bare minimum necessary. Let's not be digital gluttons here. After all, gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins.
Deadly for your poor server, which will have that background demon cleaning files in a directory that did exist in the system, but doesn't anymore, and is now completely useless. Yeah, that server gets exploited by an attacker that was able to leverage an unpatched zero day in your internet-facing application. No, you might not have been able to defend yourself against the zero day, but you definitely would have been able to avoid a more sophisticated attack against your device had you not let an unnecessary vulnerability-prone demon executing in your system just for the fun of it. The attacker gets in through an issue that is not your fault, but gets to stay and cause more problems because you were too software-hungry to delete something that was no longer needed by the system. More software, more vulnerabilities. Another important thing to note here this is a continuous effort, remember? Yes, we are talking about post-application installation and setup security measures that will be applied to your system in order for it to be hardened. However, since the application environment will change together with the application, it is necessary to maintain the system and reanalyze all that has been set up in order to update the hardening in case it is necessary. Your hardening needs to evolve together with your software and your application. We haven't yet talked about or dove deep into the elephant in the room subject that is system files. We surrounded the subject, got close to it here and there, but we still have not faced it head on. So let's go for it now. Files contain the data which we analyze, which we process, which we use to perform our computing, since even execution of a program begins with the file containing the code that is to be executed. In Linux, and consequently in Ubuntu, everything is a file. This essentially means files will contain everything an attacker needs to compromise a system. They might want to just read a file and steal its data, they might want to edit a text configuration file and change the behavior of an application, or they might want to create a file from scratch, which will be a program that when runs will do malicious things in the system. The possibilities with files are endless, and that is why file permissions must be treated with the utmost care. We must protect the bricks that make up our operating system. You have your server running. You have everything you need on the system and you won't be performing any further install or making any further changes critical to the service anytime in the near future. So why not spend some time checking your application files and your system files to make sure they do not have any suspicious or possibly harmful permissions? What files in the system contain sensitive data that shouldn't be accessed by every user? Which files can be read by all, but should have their editing permissions restricted only to the system administrator? Which executables are allowed to be executed by a specific group of users, but not by any other user in the system due to dangerous commands being part of the compiled code? This analysis must be made, and sometimes default permissions must be questioned, since the idea is that you tailor your environment to your needs. Use Chmode and Chone to get your permissions right and protect your files. An additional point of concern, SUID and SGID binaries that might be available in the system. It is interesting to disable files for which this permission is unwanted, possibly because it can easily be exploited by an attacker for privilege escalation or even worse. 
For those unaware, a setUID or setGID binary will allow a user to execute the program that is this binary, considering privileges that are not necessarily the ones set for this user. The execution will happen with the privileges of the file owner or the file group instead. Think about the ping program, for example. Our old friend ping. Ping is a setUID binary owned by root. Whenever a user executes the ping program, they run it with root privileges, and this is generally necessary since ping requires the opening of a socket and this is not an operation that can be initiated by any random user in the system. However, since ping, in theory, is pretty harmless, letting a user acquire the temporary privilege to open the socket and get ping to run is a solution. Let's consider, however, a situation where the ping file's permissions are changed to allow any user to edit it. So, writing to the file is available to everyone who wishes to do it. Makes me nervous just thinking about it. A user with little privileges in the system is then able to edit the file and change its contents to that of a program that runs ping, but at the end also opens a new shell. When this new ping is executed with root privileges, the new shell that is opened can be opened with root privileges as well. See the problem here? Of course, this is an example and default permissions for the ping executable do not allow any user to write to the file. The only user allowed to do that being root. The point here is to show the dangers of the setUID and setGID binaries and encourage you to look at your system and disable these permission bits for files where this is not necessary, where setting them is not needed. Maybe you don't need your users to run ping at all, so why not let just those with pseudo-privileges involving network access to be allowed to actually run it? Disable the setUID bit and limit usage of ping to those who really need it. The same goes to any other setUID binary any fresh software install might have created, or even files you have created and set permissions to yourself. SetUID and SetGID binaries are very commonly leveraged by attackers to exploit a system, so having less of them is a good measure to apply in order to reduce your attack surface. Also, let's continue doing continuous work here and always check permissions and SUID or SGID for new files that are welcomed into our system or old ones that are updated. What's next then? We seem to have covered all of our bases, securing every part of our system. Go us! However, some say that teamwork is the best kind of work, so let's increase our hardening by going beyond our lonely manual configurations and implementations and use some security software to help us. You are not alone in the digital world. You are not the only one trying to make your device more secure and trying to protect it against internet predators. A lot of people have developed a lot of software to help us strengthen our defenses and better manage security in our devices. So here are a few to consider. Fail to ban, which is an intrusion detection and prevention system that will analyze your log files and block suspicious activity through your firewall should any suspicious activity be detected. Other open source software out there like Snort and Suricata can also be used to achieve similar things to this. 
also consider installing malware detecting software with ClamAV or exploit detecting software with Rootkit Hunter. Two-factor authentication is highly recommended nowadays to anyone that wishes to use authentication in a secure manner, so why not implement it directly in your Ubuntu operating system? Through Google's PAM package, for example, it is possible to set two-factor authentication for users logging into your machine using sudo, doing everything in the system that requires a password. No, don't even think about considering the use of a less strong password because of this, but do see it as another layer added to the various others we have been building up here to keep your system secure. Another authentication alternative is considering the usage of a centralized authentication system, where your users are not authenticated locally, but instead in a remote server dedicated to this type of service. Of course, do not forget that usually, a service providing device such as your own server will have local application-only users that do not need to be authenticated with this other centralized authentication unit in order to run their activities in the device, so do configure those properly. However, for users that are a part of your organization layout, it might be interesting to consider outsourcing your authentication needs to this extra server. Keep in mind, however, that this increases the attack surface for your infrastructure in general, since you add to it an entirely new service device. And apply it only if the payoff is worth it to you and your entire structure. And last but not least, do consider using software that enforces mandatory access control, such as SE Linux and, of course, the one and only AppArmor. Mandatory Access Control, or MAC for short, is the counterpart to DAC, or Discretionary Access Control. In DAC, we have that access control is performed in such a way that access is allowed to resources based on the identity of a user and what the resource owners allow or not for that user in that resource. Here, all the operating system can do is enforce permissions based on identity limits set by this resource owner. On the other hand, MAC is the type of access control where a policy administrator, which is usually the root user but can be another administrative user, is the one to establish access permissions to a resource, no matter the owner of that resource. The policy administrator is able to make such choices not only based on the resource but also based on the entity which will access it as well, this entity possibly being a user or even a program, and resources being files, network devices, and other programs. The operating system can then enforce access beyond the one set by resource owner and considering more than just the identity of the entity that wishes to access the resource. In DAC, permissions for a specific resource can be easily changed by the user that owns it. The Linux file system permissions are an example of DAC. Changes to these permissions, as simple as they may be, can result in programs or users being able to interact with resources they normally shouldn't, and the ever untrustworthy user is the only one standing in the way of that. On the other hand, in Mac, with permissions or sets of permissions being defined by a policy administrator only, a random user can no longer change the ones associated to a resource just because they own it. Well, they can, through DAC, but changing overall resource permissions will no longer be as easy as just running Chimode. 
That is because as an additional layer to the checks performed to the DAC set, Mac will give more granularity to the access control process and, based on the rules set by the policy administrator, define in an owner-independent manner what users or programs can access in the system based on who they are and based on what permissions they have assigned to them regarding each specific resource. And if some shady entity wants to maybe bypass that, they will have to go through the dead body of the kernel of the operating system, which is a much harder beast to face. Even though DAC might be a more flexible way to set resource permissions, MAC is usually considered the more secure alternative, and it can even be used as a complementary measure on top of DAC to add more security to your system. You can do this, for example, by activating the AppArmor kernel security model in your Ubuntu OS, and it will allow you to restrict actions that running processes can take and resources they can access. AppArmor, therefore, will bind programs and confine them, reducing the range of harmful operations a program might be able to execute in your system. Each program will have a profile associated to it, and these will contain access rules which, when broken, can have the related attempts simply reported or instead blocked. An example would be disallowing access to a certain directory for the process that is your web server. The web server should only access web server related directories and files, and AppArmor can be set up to guarantee that. Joining DAC and Mac in your system will allow you to build up your security layers very efficiently. So do consider learning more about software that allows this to happen, as it will bring you closer to the hardened utopia we all look forward to achieve. We did it. We created an inhabitable and secure ecosystem. Just like Earth after the many, many, many years that came after the Big Bang. Thankfully, it didn't take us that long, although it wasn't a walk in the park getting all that hardening done. Our job, however, is never complete, as cybersecurity is a continuous effort. Have I already mentioned this? I can't remember. Anyway, the idea is to keep hardening even after all is said and done to run your service. How can this be achieved? Well, for starters, keep your Ubuntu system updated and install patched package versions when possible. Yes, sometimes updating breaks the system, but between spending time to maybe adjust the changes and spending a lot of nights awake having to shoo away an attacker, which one would you rather do? Another thing that needs to be done always is maintenance of users, groups, and files in the system. I already mentioned this, but I'm bringing it up again because it's very important. Your server is now a living entity, working to provide data and utilities to users all across the internet. Seasons will change, updates will happen, files will transform, users will come and go, but you will stay. You will stay and update user and file permissions according to what is applicable to your ever-changing system for that point in time. Don't assume that your initial configuration of users and files will apply forever. What is forever, though, is your effort to monitor and manage the system you have brought to life. Pretty words to live by and what we should actually be doing with our planet. You know, taking care of it. But I once again digress. And just as a last tip, 
to end the suggestion list in a very random and abrupt manner, shred your files, don't just remove them from a system. Deleting a file simply removes the reference to it in a file system, meaning someone can still dig it up from the disk should they be determined enough to do it. Get rid of sensitive data the correct way and overwrite in disk that which will no longer be used in your server. We finally reached the end, my friends, and the key takeaway here is every system is unique and every service will have its own infrastructure and needs. Do not apply all the changes suggested here if they don't bring any benefits to you. Mom used to tell you to eat your vegetables, but if you're allergic to one of them, I'm sure she wouldn't encourage you to do it, especially if you don't like eating it. What I mean here is, all we have here are suggestions, some which might be amazing and super useful to you, some that won't work. Know your system and you will definitely know what will work best for you. This might even be my actual last tip if I haven't made this clear enough with all that I have said previously. Know your IT infrastructure well and you will better know how to manage it and how to defend it. Hardening might prevent a lot from happening, keeping you safe from various intended attacks. However, creativity has always been the evolution of man and creative hackers are plenty out there, so it might be that your hardening sometimes might fail you. If you know your system well though, you might just be the last layer of hardening the system needs to kick out that hacker that was able to worm their way into the network. Keep your planet orbiting around the sun, keep your ecosystem alive and well, and do it by knowing how it works and by taking care of it when what used to work might not anymore. That is all for today, listeners. I hope you enjoyed all of the hardening suggestions we had for you in this and in the two previous episodes, and I hope you get to use them in your own systems to make them more secure. As always, do feel free to share your thoughts with us in our social media channels, and for now, I bid you all farewell, and until next time. Bye! And thanks, as always, for Camilla. Now, uh, you know, this was a three-part series that Camilla's doing, but actually next week we will be bringing you a fourth part as a follow-up to that uh, to kind of roll in some various feedback and other things that we've had along the way. So definitely make sure you look out for that one. Okay, the other thing that I wanted to talk about in this week's episode is a follow-up to a topic that I discussed a couple of weeks back in episode 151, talking about this long-standing bug that Python has not been compiled as a position-independent executable on Ubuntu. So this bug has been uh, open since 2015. Uh, there's been a lot of backwards and forwards, basically, uh, you know, traditionally making Python a position-independent executable uh, has had a quite a reasonable performance impact. Uh, the impact of that has uh, lessened over time. And so in conjunction with the foundations team, we've been working to try to enable that by default. Uh, Matthias Close, uh, otherwise known as Doko, uh, he has been working on this and actually just uh, overnight rolled out a new version of Python 3.10 for Ubuntu 22.04 uh, that's currently in development, which does enable position-independent executable for Python 3.10 by default. To alleviate some of the concerns around possible performance impact of this, uh, there's also now a new binary package called Python3.10-NoPy, which, uh, as you can imagine from the name, builds uh, Python without uh, being a position-independent executable the way that things have always been done. Basically, you know, if you are running in a more trusted environment and, you know, you don't think you'll be running any untrusted Python code and therefore have a risk of, you know, Python being exploited, 
then you can install uh, Python 3.10 NoPy, which uh, then should have uh, you know, none of these issues, well, none of these possible performance issues as a result. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, we recommend that you do use Python with uh, Py enabled. That will certainly keep your bits safer. That does enable uh, things like address space layout randomization uh, to be used within user space to mitigate various memory corruption uh, vulnerabilities, or at least certainly to make those harder to be uh, exploited against you. So yeah, thanks in particular uh, to Matthias on the foundations team for uh, doing all that hard work. Yeah, we really appreciate um, help you helping to make fun to be more secure. All right, so that takes us to the end of this week's episode. As usual, if you want to get in contact with us to give us any feedback about Ubuntu security or this podcast or anything else, you can email us at security.ubuntu.com. We do hang out in the Ubuntu security channel on the libera.chat IRC network, and we're on Twitter at Ubuntu underscore sec as well. So thanks everyone for listening again for another week and thanks Camilla for uh, your third part of that series. Uh, I really look forward to hearing part four next week. Uh, as always, you know we will be with you next week, but until then, remember, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.